When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, we are speaking with Laura Stokes about melancholy. Laura, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, listeners. I'm Laura. I'm a professor of history at Stanford. I work on early modern Europe, which is a broad space and time, but my interests are various. I wrote a book on witchcraft and witch trials, which is something that still interests me. I'm working on a book about a murder right now, but it's really about early modern economic culture and political culture. And I also work on gender. I'm non-binary. I use they, them pronouns, and gender is something that's always fascinated me in kind of an outsider way. So... Levi Strauss says that you have to be really alienated to be a good anthropologist because anthropologists have to look from the outside. So I'm like an anthropologist of gender. Cool. So let me ask you our first question, which is what the heck is melancholy? Yeah. So what the heck is melancholy? Melancholy is like every other word we have, lots of things. In the way that it matters to me, it's kind of three things. At the most basic or maybe physical, it's black bile. It is one of the four classical Western humors, which scientists and doctors in the West don't really believe in anymore, but I have kind of a, an interest in the wisdom of that system. Melancholy is also the sort of physical, bodily, and mental expressions of that humor when it is expressing itself most dominantly in a person or in fact, in an animal or a plant or a planet or anything else, according to certain early modern thinkers and ancient thinkers. But the way that we use melancholy today and the way that it tends to most immediately matter to us is as kind of the emotional and mental expression that those ancient doctors associated with the overweening predominance of black bile or melancholy, which is what we call melancholy. And that's the emotional state characterized most strongly by sadness but also by a whole array of other emotions, some of which can be pleasant and others can be stormy and still others can be actually deeply productive. But it is most characteristically marked by sadness. And so we think of melancholy basically as sadness. And it makes us think of of tears or thoughtfulness and things like that. 
Yeah, I wonder if maybe you could say a bit more about the humoral system, because I'm not sure everybody knows what it is. Well, it's kind of a passion of mine. I'm very interested in the humors, not because I think that we actually are. I mean, I don't know, actually, maybe we are, in fact, as the ancients described it, a, a system of balancing principles in which really just a few sets of basic polarities when added together in a multidimensional way create a very complex and individually differentiated phenomenon that is the human being. So the four humors are really divided along two polarities, the hot and cold polarity and the wet and dry polarity. Okay. And if you imagine it just like as a graph, like a Cartesian graph, mm -hmm. um, Melancholy is over on the kind of cold and dry side of things. And the okay. other four humors, the wet and dry is the phlegmatic, and the wet and warm or the wet and hot is the sanguine, and the okay. dry and hot is the choleric. Okay. These humors are understood, as is melancholy, as both a kind of uh, viscous liquid moving through the body and doing things in the ordinary healthy functioning of the body, and also as a kind of spiritual principle that animates the parts of the body that it is currently inhabiting. So that when the phlegmatic principle is running things, the person is kind of prone to lassitude and quietness and is not energetic, right? As we would think of phlegmatic today in our colloquial uses. Again, it, like melancholy, our uses derive from those ancient uses. Yeah. The thing that's kind of crazy about that is that we haven't kept the sort of functional usage of melancholy, right? Like we don't imagine that melancholy is an ordinary state of the body anymore. Right. Nor, I mean, I guess with the phlegmatic, we have this theory of phlegm, like phlegm is a thing that you <laughs> and I have all experienced. In that sense, the humor makes sense as a liquid moving through our bodies, or at least maybe in our lungs and our upper respiratory system and so forth. Actually, phlegm is a good example because we all kind of experience phlegm as yucky, like who likes to sneeze? I mean, I have kind of a horror of sneezes, like, oh, God, the cat sneezed. Why? <laughs> right. But we know what phlegm is, yeah. but we also know that phlegm has a function, that what it's doing is picking up those particulates, the, the ash in the air or the cat hair and like pushing it back out of the body, getting the dander out. Right. So you don't have to get your lungs all clogged up. Mm hmm. So phlegm has a function, but it also has this kind of negativity to it. And that's true of all the humors, that they all have kind of an important function and a good side, but they all have a bad side. And then there's a set of hot humors. The sanguine was associated with blood. We also, as we do today, associate with happiness, although that terminology referring to someone as sanguine is kind of old fashioned now. But I guess, I guess these are all kind of old fashioned terms when it comes to that. And then the fourth or perhaps the first, depending on how you count, I start with the melancholic by my own dispositions, is the choleric. And that is the hot, dry humor that is associated with anger, with forceful action, and usually with vigorous, muscular, healthy, strong, but perhaps destructive people. Cool. So how do we use melancholy? How do we use melancholy? So, right. We use phlegm because it moves bad things out, and we use blood because it transfers energy around the body. Melancholy, when it moves in the body, it creates a quietness, a kind of focus. And the main uses of melancholy are quietly creative functions. The melancholic might be 
Hemingway and writing beautiful novels, right? Although I don't know if Hemingway was in fact melancholic. The melancholic might be a scholar, as was Robert Burton, who in the 17th century famously penned The Anatomy of Melancholy. It might be a humor that leads one to write poetry, right? Poets might be melancholic. In some ways, one of the uses of melancholy is to inhabit the space of thoughtfulness and quietness and contemplation which is useful for us as human beings. It's one of the spaces that we individually and collectively need. We need to sit back and think about things sometimes. And for me, when I think about the uses of melancholy, I'm thinking, what is the use of studying melancholy, which is pretty meta, a melancholic person studying, which is a melancholic practice, melancholy itself, which is also this ancient humoral system. Wow, I lost my train of thought there. (laughs) That's okay. I mean, I think it's sort of the like, why do we study history question? I mean, I guess my main interest is actually the idea that what is good and normal and functional can be bad. It can be unhealthy. It can be a source of real agony and even destroy the person if it's too dominant, if it's overpowering. This goes back to that ancient principle of moderation, which we all sort of understand, right? Finding a balance between too wet, too dry, too hot, and too cold, but also too much abstinence or too much partying for that matter, right? Like, how do we find the balance? How do we interact with people enough, but not too much and so forth? So in that sense, there's a use to thinking about that old conception of the world in its larger frame rather than in the very specifics about what is the black bile actually and how does it move in the body. Yeah. And I'm also interested in the ways that ancient thinkers and doctors believed that the physical and the spiritual or emotional were intricately linked and that there was kind of a continuum of motion between the two, that there was a feedback system, that that Mm -hmm. system had some kind of perceivable balance and reality to it that you could understand the structure, that you could map it out and even help people who became unbalanced. Let me ask you our final question. How will melancholy save the world? Right. So you could see where I was going there is how would the study of melancholy save the world? But in order to kind of complete the parallelness of thinking about the thing and also the study of the thing, I would say, how could melancholy save the world or how has it changed the world? Mm -hmm. And when I think about how melancholy has changed the world, I think about Burton's time as kind of a melancholy time. And he describes it that way himself. It was a time in the 17th century where literacy had gone from a relatively rare thing for people of particular professions to becoming something that everyone had. And by everyone, I don't mean actually everyone, but it was very widespread. The explosion of literacy in the 17th century was accompanied by this kind of religiously introspective, self-examining, critical approach that really could encourage melancholy on an emotional level. One of the things Burton was concerned about was the way in which religious practice might encourage melancholy in a negative sense. Not that he was not himself religious, but just understood that anything can be done too much, right? In that ancient Roman sense of superstition, which means to believe too much to the point of illness. Mm. So in that sense, if we think about the 17th century as a melancholic age, what Burton describes melancholy is the kind of sickness of 
idleness as well as of introspection. And one of his prescriptions for it is busyness <laughs> and exploration. And if you think about what the Europeans did in the 17th century with busyness and exploration, you land in the 18th century with everything from the triangle trade in the Atlantic system, which is just destroying human lives by the millions in order to make more money. And it's this kind of incredible engine of busyness mm. uh, in the most terrifying way. Yeah. This is a new version of Weber's Protestant ethic. You could make the analysis that the birth of capitalism and the explosion of European colonialism is in some ways connected to this kind of melancholic age. In that it's the cure? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> maybe, maybe we I mean, don't need to part, cure right? melancholy is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think that there may be other cures. Uh, okay. I'm more into, you know, moderation than mass global colonialism. Fair. The ancient advice would be if you're prone to introspection, you're probably doing enough of it and it's time <laughs> to go outside and talk to people. But if you're prone to always being in conversation with people all the time, yeah, maybe it's time for a little introspection. If you're prone to always reading the news, maybe it's time for a little time without reading, right? Yeah. It's all about balance. It's all about doing something different than whatever habit your body has taken on too strongly and your mind has taken on too strongly, which might be harming you. Melancholy is not a bad thing. None of the four humors are bad. They're just essential things, which you want to have not too much of at once. So how can melancholy save the world? I like this question. I'm not sure I have the answer to it. The only answer I guess I have is that we inhabit, and by that I think probably you and I, inhabit a space that is melancholy trying to save the world. That's what the university system is. It's melancholy trying to save the world. I'm not sure it's working, <laughs> but it's definitely trying and it's producing some amazing things along with all of the imperfections of the system. I like that answer. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Um, it's been a pleasure. It was really fun. Thanks. It was great to be here and it was great to chat with you again. I really enjoyed reading Burton with you this summer. So I hope we can do that again sometime with a different book. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm, I'm definitely keen. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Aria Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. 